Well, you know, a very dear friend of mine is a man named Dr. Daniel Amen. He's a fairly famous neuroscientist, brain imaging expert, and psychiatrist here in Utah. And Daniel's taught me a lot about how your brain lies to you. Not everything your brain tells you is true. That we often confuse facts with our emotions, our opinions, and our feelings. Hey guys, every so often, I have a conversation that is power-packed with both inspiration and strategic insight. Well, this episode with Scott Jeffrey Miller offers this and a whole lot more. My guest today hosts the number one leadership podcast in the world, and I had the pleasure of exploring becoming great with him. And it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur, leader, athlete, influencer, or however you spend your time. There is greatness in you, and this episode will help you get a few steps closer to it. So enjoy. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Please leave a comment on Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening. It will mean a lot. Thank you. Welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Hi, I'm Timothy Maurice, and I am your behavioral psychology author. Thank you so much for choosing this episode. And I have a special guest, Mr. Scott Jeffrey Miller. He's Franklin Covey's senior advisor on thought leadership, and he's written this second volume of Master Mentors, Transformative Insights from Extraordinary People. Scott, welcome. How are you? I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for shining your spotlight onto me. Such a great way for us to connect across literally opposite sides of the world today. Yeah, absolutely. You are in Salt Lake City? That's right. Salt Lake City, Utah. And the time difference between here and Johannesburg is what is it? I think like, 70 hours. It's... I think it's about 70 hours. Is that right? No, okay. I don't, I don't, I'm guessing it's <laughs> a lot of hours. like 16, 16 hours. Uh, I've done that flight before. I just know that's really long. So uh, yes, I'm guessing yes, it's yes, opposite yes. sides of the day and night. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott, we're going to dive in. I have, I'd like for us to go through our inside the mind feature so we can get to know you a little bit. Seven insightful questions, fun Way to engage. Can we do it? Bring it on. Tennis or volleyball? Oh, tennis for sure. 100%. Japan or China? Oh, Japan. 110%. Although I've been to China <laughs> probably a dozen times and Japan probably six or seven, but you'll never meet a more gracious culture than the Japanese. Yeah. Have you taken the bullet train from Kyoto to Tokyo? Oh my gosh. Like one of my five things I have not yet done yet. Not yet okay. done. I've been to Tokyo six, seven times. have not been up to Kyoto. I will be doing that. I hear about it. Awesome. Coffee or tea? Depends on the time of day. I drink a half a cup of coffee every morning, very early. And then I might drink a cup of tea later on. I can't drink tea on an empty stomach. So it depends on the time of the day. Plane, train, boat, or car? Well, definitely not a boat because I'm from Florida. <laughs> so I have an irrational fear of sharks in the ocean. So probably <laughs> plane, definitely not a train. If you're watching the news, not a train in America. Trains are crashing well, around the world right now. So um, air travel is insanely safe. Definitely a uh, plane. Jogging or swimming? Swimming in a pool <laughs> with no sharks. <laughs> Mentoring or leading? Trick question. 
Well, they're similar, are they not? Uh, but not all leaders are mentors and not all mentors are necessarily leaders. My entire career has been focused on both of those things. I probably would say mentoring because you actually have less responsibility. As a leader, <laughs> you have an incumbency <laughs> upon you to hold people accountable. And mentoring is usually more you know, goodwill and philanthropic. So at the age of 55, after having been a leader for 30 years, I would say mentoring. Awesome. Well, this final question, number seven, is one that, remember, you agreed to the rules, so you have to answer. Seth Godding or Daniel Pink? Oh, Seth. I love Daniel Pink. He's a remarkable social scientist. Seth Godin is one of the most abundant people I've ever met in my life. He is a joy. He's an iconoclast. I've had him on my podcast several times. He's endorsed my books. I love Dan Pink, and I adore it would do anything for Seth Godin. Thank Let's you so much for doing this. This is fun. Can we just spend the whole half an hour doing yeah, this? Yeah, no, no. Doing <laughs> Thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind, Scott. Share a little bit about your role at Franklin Covey. I mean, I think for us who've written a number of books, this is like a sweet spot. Everybody dreams of, having this kind of iconic brand that kind of backs you. Tell us a little bit about your role and how you got it. That was beautifully said. Well, I'm from Orlando, Florida, originally. Born and raised there, worked for the Walt Disney Company for four years, and then fled the humidity out to Utah about 27 years ago. Was fortunate enough to be recruited by Stephen Covey, of course, the iconic author of the seminal book and books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, worked in the firm for 25 years, spent 10 years in the C-suite as the chief marketing officer and executive vice president of thought leadership, where I was responsible for all business development, marketing, books, public relations, web properties. I and a team of about 45 people. I actually retired from the firm about two and a half years ago in good standing after 25 years and became an advisor to the CEO and the board, still helping to lead their book strategy because although this company is a massive leadership development firm, their revenue doesn't come from books. Their their pipeline, their opportunities, their business development is very much based on books, right? Books, someone like you reads a book, and then you decide to bring our company in and, and uh, build a great culture through our solutions. So now I'm privileged to, although continue to lead their thought leadership division, I host two podcasts for them. One is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, which week I interview business titans, celebrities, authors, plane crash survivors from our previous conversation, and also members of the C-Suite on a second podcast called C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. And it's upon this first podcast that I wrote a series of books called Master Mentors, 10 books in this series, two down, eight to go. And I think we'll talk (laughs) about that a little bit today. Yeah, it's funny. I So I partnered with CNBC for five years and did a show where I interviewed women leaders called Inside Her C-Suite. Oh, and wow. it's one of my favorite chapters of my career. We traveled to about 14 countries. I wow. learned so much. By going into the offices, it was a different conversation. Obviously, this was before COVID. Scott, you're a brilliant mind yourself, and you've interviewed many great minds, both for this book as well as your own podcast. Have you ever left a conversation and just felt your entire mind was shifted on a subject? Usually twice a week. Wow. Uh, 
first of all, I'm not a brilliant mind. I'm just a great absorber and a great aggregator and a great pollinator. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever had an original thought in my life. In fact, soberingly, most humans haven't, right? Given how many billions of us there's been. There's no question. I, I'm privileged like you to sit in this remarkable chair and have the interviews with some of the most amazing people in the world. Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, Arita Huffington, Brene Brown, Steph Godin, Dan Pink, and others. Uh, one in particular, can I share it with you? Sure. So his name is Nick Vujicic. He's actually Australian by birth and American by residency. Very famous author, motivational speaker. Nick was born with no arms and no legs. Wow. And Nick has now become a very dear friend of mine, and we're involved in some collaborations together. But Nick has lived a life of immense joy and gratitude and influence. The man has no arms, no legs. He can't scratch his hair. He can't use the restroom by himself. He can't eat. He can't walk. He can text because he has a, a he has a small, like foot-like appendage coming out of his waist with a couple of kind of funky toes on it. So we have texting competitions with my sons and Nick. But the powerful concept I learned from Nick really is 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 a fulfilled life is one that's rooted in gratitude. Gratitude for all that you have. Gratitude for all that you don't have. And Nick has helped to teach me that you can live your life every day through the lens of I have to, or I ought to, or I get to. I get to empty the dishwasher. I get to take the garbage cans out in a snowstorm at 10 o'clock on Sunday night. I get to drop my boys off in three separate schools and pick them up and take them to three separate uh, uh, sporting events and then come home and then make dinner at 8 o'clock with my wife. So this idea of living your life, not through the lens of I have to or I ought to, but rather I get to, I get to terminate someone and relieve them from my and their pain. I get to have a high courage conversation with someone about their blind spots that wow. might change the trajectory of their work. This is something that's very powerful. I've learned from Nick Vujicic. Incredible. If you look at how you arrived at your current mindset, Let's talk a little bit about, was there a moment where, a pivotal moment that catapulted you into your current mindset? You know, I mentioned I served in the C-suite as a named officer in a public company for a decade, Franklin Covey, and I reported to the chairman most of my career, not the entire career. And this is a gentleman who was very successful, uh, more money than he could spend, you know, enormous athlete, man of impeccable integrity, nice, kind, generous, gracious man that generally did not like conflict. Now, if you backed him into a corner, you would lose. So don't back <laughs> him into a corner. Yeah, You're yeah, going to go yeah. down in flames. But he generally had a, what I call a telepathic style of leadership, which he wanted you to kind of rise to the occasion and read his mind, how he wanted you to behave. And one day during an executive meeting, after a particularly intense conversation, by the way, we had nothing in common and we adore each other. I would give this man a kidney no questions asked. And he drove me wow. crazy, and I'm sure I drove him crazy. One day after an intense conversation in an executive team meeting, he walked past me and looked at me and said, Scott, you make too many declarative statements. And he mm. walked to the restroom. We never discussed it. We never unpacked it. It wasn't his style. And I've thought a lot about that because he was right. I was a bit of a know-it-all. I was always the one to speak first and raise my hand first and weigh in first. I was not very good at uh, self-regulation. 
or letting other people share their ideas first and then weigh in. And that's made me a much more deliberate and contemplative speaker and a little more patient and thoughtful around not always assuming I am right, but focus more on what is right. If we were to take your brain, put it on a table, peel it back, and somehow use the connectome to look at what you've aggregated over the years about mindset, what would you say are some of the patterns you've discovered from your own observations and the people you've interviewed about mindset? Well, you know, a very dear friend of mine is a man named Dr. Daniel Amen. He's a fairly famous neuroscientist, brain imaging expert, and psychiatrist here in Utah. Very dear friend. Interviewed him three or four times. And Daniel's taught me a lot about how your brain lies to you. Not everything your brain tells you is true. That we often confuse facts with our emotions, our opinions, and our feelings. That I've learned from Susan David, the famous um, psychologist out of Harvard, wrote a book called Emotional um, Agility. So I've learned not to trust my brain. My brain, of course, is my reptilian <laughs> defender, right? It protects me usually from death and trauma, but doesn't always tell me the best thing to do or the right thing to do. And it lies to me. So I have to have a bit of a governor to realize, okay, so am I feeding this narrative? Is this my jealousy, my envy? If I, if I made up a false narrative, did this person really do this or do I feel like they did this? And I, am I connecting dots that shouldn't be connected? I do that a lot. I connect things that don't need to be connected. So-and-so is mad at me. So-and-so hasn't returned my email. And this person hasn't um, responded to me. So therefore, everyone must hate me today. Therefore, I'm a horrible person and I should yes. just go find new friends. No, that's insanity. Yeah. That's connecting dots that shouldn't be connected. But but is there anything within there that I might tease out to say, hey, do I owe someone an apology? Are they? Am I, am I stalking them too much? Should I back off on this? So I've been the great beneficiary of recognizing that my brain is a powerful tool. I have to feed it well, and I also have to keep it in check because your mindset is what drives your behaviors, and your behaviors is what drive your results. So if you want better results, you got to back through your behaviors and then ask yourself, why is my belief system, my mindset, my paradigm driving that? There's been so much talk on I spent a couple of years at MIT and a lot of our, one of my colleagues, Dr. Tara Swart, she's really big on neuroplasticity, but I push back a lot. I'm like, changing and rewiring your brain is really, really hard. And I'm not, not pushing back because I'm some sort of contrarian. I'm pushing back because exactly what you said, like I, the temptation to think it's easy is my issue. You know, when you start to think about rewiring your brain and trying to evolve your mindset, what are some of the ways that can inspire people to go, look, over the next 90 days, over the next year, I'm going to commit to this thing. And here are some of the things I should be thinking because I've heard about this neuroplasticity thing. Well, you and I have a very different background, right? I know um, a, a fraction of what you do about neuroscience in the brain. I've spent 25 years in the broader industry. So I'll, I'll maybe talk less about the, the makeup of the brain and how to rewire your brain, but I'll give you some practical tips on 30 years as a leader 
on how to support that. One is, I think you and I were discussing this off air, surrounding yourself with people who are different than you is probably the best way to change your mindset. People from different cultures, religions, backgrounds, educations, different points of view, different fields of experience. You know, I live in Utah. It's a primarily white state and it's a primarily Republican state and it's a fairly affluent state. Yesterday I was in Wisconsin giving a keynote speech with a very different group of people. And the Uber drivers were just remarkable to talk to. One, one had been a prison guard for 40 years, a, mm. a, a black American man with a strong pension and a strong background and four boys that had been raised in a 50 year marriage. He was driving Uber in the evenings for fun. I learned nice. so much about his journey. I, it was probably one of the most profound 25 minute conversations I've had this year so far. So one is to intentionally put yourself in uncomfortable positions, become comfortable wow. being uncomfortable with people who see things radically different than you do and ask themselves, you know, they must see that that way for a reason. I really want to understand. We disagree on this. How cool. Let's talk about it civilly. And then <laughs> that's tough, right? And then I think yeah. that's one way to really help to rewire your brain is to challenge your entrenched belief systems and mindsets because we all have them, right? Our parents, I mean, I, I was raised to believe as a child, as a white upper middle-class citizen in the eighties from Florida, I was raised to believe that doctors, police officers, and members of the clergy were always right and always told the truth. Mm. That was not an outrageous belief system being a white kid in the eighties in Florida. I mean, do sure. doctors always tell the truth? Are they right? Do police? No, of course not. It's outrageous. So one is to really check your mindset by surrounding yourself with people with different experiences. Secondly, I would say is be a voracious hunter of feedback on yourself. Wow. Is constantly setting yourself up where other people feel safe telling you their truth about you, about your personality, about your patience, about your collaboration skills, about how your breath smells, about whether your clothes fit you, about what it's like to be in a conversation with you or work a trade show booth with you or be in a meeting with you or be married to you. You've wow. got to take control of the environment where other people feel safe telling you what it's like to be in any kind of relationship with you. It's your responsibility because most people will say, oh my gosh, Scott, you're great. You're a genius. You're awesome. No, I am petty. I can be jealous. I'm impulsive. I'm impetuous. I'm impatient. I'm a know-it-all. And so the more I place people in my life that will tell me their truth, notice I said their truth, not the truth, that they will tell me their truth about me. No question that has some connection to my ability to modify my mindset and maybe even rewire my brain on how I'm, how I think I'm viewed by others. I hope that was valuable. Very valuable. And I think, I think what's really unique about your experience is just how broad you've worked and traveled and how many people you've interviewed. So you you do have almost this library of insights. And I have listened to your podcast and it's really wonderful to see you effortlessly and so authentically share. Did you have to leave anyone out of your, out of this book? Um, that, what a great question. I like you. Uh, I'm learning great interview skills from you. Thank you for the compliments. I've been most privileged to be sitting in this seat. Um, I interviewed a woman yesterday from Australia named Bronnie Ware. She's a palliative care nurse. 
not a nurse actually, but you know, known as kind of like a hospice caregiver. She wrote a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Highly oh, recommend wow. this book, The Five Regrets of the Dying. She will be in off, um, volume four. Your question okay. was, is there anybody I had to leave out of the book? Well, I write a volume of master mentors every year. I interview 52 people a year. I invite 30 of them to be featured in the book. So I, 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 I find 30 of the 52 that I think had a transformative insight that like rocked my world. And then I asked them, hey, with your permission, can I write about them? By the way, Tim, don't I ever see. write a book about 30 celebrities because the number of publicists, <laughs> agents, attorneys, and hangers on that want to say no is endless. It's a stupid idea. Wow. Anyway, with, with their permission that I feature them, I have had one person say no after, I, after they said yes um, because they felt that I was using them for their race to balance out the diversity in my book and they wanted to be paid for their appearance. They were wow. grossly mistaken. I pre-forgave them for their ignorance and released them in which they would come back because I wrote a beautiful chapter that could have helped highlight their influence tremendously. They were served, I think, poorly by probably an agent. So I forgive that person for their, um, their ignorance. There was a per, there's one episode that I haven't aired out of 300 tapes. I didn't air one of them, a name you would recognize, a very famous person. Because basically they went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs about 12 minutes in. And the interviews are about 30 minutes. And so out of respect, I just kept going, recognizing that their celebrity was so big, <laughs> they would never know if I released it. And as soon as we finished, we'd like put that one in the garbage can. And so yeah, only yeah, one yeah. have I not aired. And okay. we didn't even tell them because they wouldn't even know. <laughs> a, a, because they were a bit arrogant. But B, they wouldn't know if my podcast released or not. So only one did I not air. If you could transport transport yourself to the past, is there anyone you'd love to interview who's not alive? Well, I have three sons with my wife, Stephanie. They're 8, 10, and 12. And my oldest son is named Thatcher after one of my heroes, Margaret Thatcher. And so That's I'd cool. love to interview Margaret Thatcher to say, what did you get right? What did you get wrong? What went wrong in the Falkland Islands? What went right on economic and social policy in the UK? I'd love to interview Ronald Reagan. <laughs> um, same questions. I'd love to interview Pope John Paul II. Same questions. I think those three people helped to bring communism to their knees. Uh, I met mm. Mikhail Gorbachev once, very briefly. Did not know him. Never had a conversation with them. But I think those four people together had a profound impact on giving hope to you know millions of people that were being repressed are still being repressed in that same country. And the horror that's happening hoisted upon Ukraine. So those are four people. But I think I'd like to start with Margaret Thatcher because although I'm not obsessed with her, I think she had strengths and weaknesses. I'd like sure. my oldest son to watch that interview and know the better qualities that she contributed. She had some mistakes, clearly, like we all sure. do. That would be a yeah. gift to my oldest son. Have you considered interviewing your oldest son? Well, so he and I are going to write a book together. He's 12. Uh, and so I'm not sure if I would put him before Tony Robbins or after Brene Brown. So I have to be careful about not being self-serving. But um, I, write a, I write a separate series of books called the Mess to Success series. The first book was Management Mess to Leadership Success. The oh, second nice. book was Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Now, the third book is coming out called Communication Mess to Influence Success. But the fourth oh, book, wow. the fourth book Tim is going to be parenting mess 
to launch success. And so Thatcher is going to co-write that book with me. This is my like Princeton, Harvard, Yale yeah. admission strategy, best-selling okay. author at age of 14. But, you know, you kind of can't <laughs> write a book about being launched well when you're 12 years old. So I got to have it yeah, like, at exactly. least in high school. And so, you know, probably three more years till Parenting Nest to Launch Success comes out. It's so Maybe fun. One of my dreams. Yeah, one of my dreams is to do a book with my father as well. He and uh, I have been talking about it. Yeah, he was a writer back in the Navy. And, um, you know, we keep talking about it. We keep talking about it. I need to spend some time, actually. You've inspired me to want to go home and spend some time with yes. you. Yes, yes, go do it. I'll be Scott, your agent. We, Call me. I'll be your agent. Yeah, I'll okay, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. I, As we wrap up, I had a wonderful experience with Franklin Covey in Namibia. They, Whoever had the license there contacted me to do a series of women's leadership seminars. And I have a lot of respect for the systems, the brand, the history, and everything. Where do you want to take it? You know, we've talked a bit about the book and all the publishing you want to come out as the world is shifting and evolving, the right and the left and the centers, everybody is just, you know, you look, this is a really interesting time in history around ideologies on all sides. And, you know, the work you're doing has a role to help people navigate this. I was recently doing uh, a some leadership work with AstraZeneca and we had about 30 countries on the line and I was blown away at just how radically different people thought about leadership. And you guys are the ones leading this globally. I mean, there's some big players out there, but, you know, being in this space, I'm fortunate to be aware of just how much of a role you guys can play. What role do you see yourself playing in the future in this leadership conversation? Well, so to clarify, I serve at the pleasure of the CEO, right? I'm now a contracted advisor. I'm not an officer of the company, so I'm not crafting strategy anymore. But okay. I'm, I'm tightly knitted to their culture and their mission, which is to enable greatness in people and organizations everywhere. Whatever your great purpose is, we want to help you enable it by teaching principles of effectiveness. These principles that cover every culture and generation and nationality and religion and philosophy. There are principles that govern human behavior. And one of them is emerging that... Every company is now a technology company, whether you're selling tulips or lingerie or mining for diamonds or you're selling milk. Every company is now a technology company and every company is in the same business. They're in the people business. They're in the relationship business. And as a leader, I would argue that your primary responsibility, even more so than mission, vision and values and systems and structures and strategies, all those things are important. But I'd argue your number one contribution is developing relationships with your people. Mutually beneficial, respectful relationships where they know you and you know them, where you know what their fears and their joys and their passions are, and you're trying to unleash their name and unleash. Identify and name and unleash their natural genius. Have it come to life in your organization. Have them choose a high level of engagement so they stick around and don't get poached off by somebody else. This kind of boils down to recruiting and retaining. I think most leaders spend too much time just recruiting, but they've also got to retain. You've got to earn the right for people to want to stay there. So I just would send off your listeners today remembering you are in the relationship business and very few of us are expert at it. I'm not, you know, I can be socially awkward. 
I can be uncomfortable <laughs> with silence. I like to move. I'm not an expert at developing relationships. I don't know anybody is. We're not taught this in school. Mm. Mm. And so I would just double back down to say, how could you be better at developing relationships? Maybe it's as simple as saying to somebody, you know something? I know I have a lot of strengths. And one of them is that I'm not great at developing relationships. So if I ever cut you off or I'm awkward or this, just tell me, don't tell me in front of the entire audience, call me aside and say, Miller, that was kind of crazy. What's going on there? We'll have a laugh <laughs> about it. Hopefully kind of goes back to that feedback piece. Remember your job is to become an expert at developing relationships. And that is just foundational to being a great leader and mentor. You know, I, when we go through your book, you know, from from literally Karen Dillon, Daniel Pink to all these extraordinary people that you've had a chance to interview, I have I've shared the stage with one person on this list, and that's Stedman Graham. And we were ah, speaking at a conference in Atlanta. I love him. And and if I'm if I'm honest, I mean, you know, he's a nice guy, and he said some really cool stuff. But it was the conversation we had off stage i asked him i said what's the most nervous you've been and he said when oprah was on the front row when he was speaking and i want to close by asking you what was the most nervous you've ever been you've spoken over the entire world you've shared your thought leadership work you've shared your books around the world you've signed thousands of books what's the most nervous you've ever been so nervousness is not a quality or a personal trait that I associate with. I'm not a, I, I, I have a unreasonably high level of self-confidence <laughs> known to many, known to many as arrogance, just to clarify. But there was a time about three years ago when I spoke at a large conference, 7,000 people, a big arena. It had been put on by a very famous author named Rachel Hollis. She wrote two yeah. big books here in the U.S., um, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop apologizing. She's had a bit of a sense, a rough run since then for some things she said and had some highs and lows. Overall, I think she's a fundamentally phenomenal person. She kind of had some PR debacles that weren't okay. handled very well. Anyway, she took a chance on me and she put me in this audience, one of her conferences, 7,000 people. And this was a, a kind of like a personal development, you know, big conference, big band, big DJ, singing, mm. dancing. You know, Brendan Bouchard and Marie Forleo and Amy Porterfield and Ed Milet and Trent Shelton. I mean, big names in America. And then there was Scott Miller, that officer from the public company from Utah, where everybody is buttoned down and no one's ever dropped an yes. F-bomb and everything is perfect. Yeah, yeah. And what I realized <laughs> was this was not like your typical leadership conference. This was 7,000 entrepreneurs with side hustles. They wanted to have fun mm. and learn. They were very successful. Mm. But they weren't from Oracle. They weren't from IBM. They weren't from Johnson & Johnson. These were people that were out there with side hustles. So I had to figure out how was I going to transfer my 25 years of sort of button down, tight tie, sit in your seat, behave, don't color outside the lines, which was the Franklin <laughs> Covey in Disney culture, to how am I going to connect with these people? So I rehearsed. I role played. I moved way outside my comfort zone. I danced on stage. I went a little fun out. And I'm a naturally kind of fun person, but it's kind of been beaten out of me a little bit in corporate America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was probably the most nervous I was backstage, recognizing that these big speakers, they're throwing up, they're pacing, they're praying, they got a mantra, they come out they're like a million bucks, <laughs> but behind stage, they are losing their you-know-what. So to everybody who feels now validated, just know you're not alone between what happens behind the curtain 
and in front of the curtain. Scott Jeffrey Millett, thank you for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. My honor. Thank you.